You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Libertarian Country is one of the fastest growing and most popular liberty-themed apparel companies in the world. This American-based company was founded by two brothers out of Baltimore who had a vision to create an online store that offers fun, unique, and controversial political clothing and accessories. This five-star company offers the hottest shirts, hoodies, hats, and so much more. So check them out today. This is an independently-owned, liberty-loving business that basically gives you the exact type of apparel and paraphernalia that you've wanted anyway. You just didn't know you wanted it now. Every purchase you make using the link in the show notes allows a small part of your purchase to come back and support the show. So go on, go grab some awesome libertarian country swag using that link in the show notes. You'll thank me later. Real fast, let me go ahead and tell you about Inbox Dollars. Are you looking for a side hustle so easy you could do it while sitting on the toilet or in between commercials watching your favorite show? Unless you're like on demand and commercials are like an ancient thing to you. Hear me out. Inbox Dollars has your back. For 20 years, Inbox Dollars has paid over $59 million in cash rewards to its members for doing everyday online activities such as reading emails, taking online surveys, playing games, and watching videos and TV. They also have ongoing promos and contests for members to win money online, and they share the top ways for people to get beauty samples, free printable coupons, and other free online stuff. With so many easy ways to earn extra cash online and having fun in the process, it's no wonder Forbes, Mashable, Bustle, and so many other trusted outlets name Inbox Dollars the easiest and fastest way to earn money online. If you're looking for a way to influence future products and services while getting paid at the same time, then Inbox Dollars is for you. Click the special link in the show notes of this episode today and get $5 just for signing up. Get this $5 signing bonus just for creating an account. That's Inbox Dollars. The link is in the show notes of today's episode. Get it, get your $5, and get started. yourself you're on the run with remzo w martinez all right everyone I, i've usually called myself the millennial forest gum i've seemed to have uh, developed a a rather peculiar life as some would say and i don't, I don't really look to get into strange situations strange situations just kind of appear around me and i adapt to it um, anyone that's been listening to me, reading my stuff, and, and all you know, following all my misadventures knows that's the case. I don't ask for this; it just happens. I'm I'm the millennial Forrest Gump, just running, and I happen to you know inspire movement of crazy people who leave their lives and run with me. It's a it's a pleasant cult, but you know it's it is what it is. There, there's somebody I want to bring on today who has found himself really in a, a summer which he will probably not soon forget. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Gavin Wax. Gavin, it is a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining us from Ground Zero. Is it still Ground Zero for the pandemic, or is it Ground Zero for the the riots? It, where, 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 where the hell are you right now? <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Renzo. And uh, yes, it's certainly still uh, the epicenter of all that is horrible and miserable in this country, uh, New York City. We are the center of the pandemic still, I believe, even though our numbers are trailing off. And uh, we're certainly uh, 
seeing the spike in crime and lawlessness and all the other social ills that have become uh, the norm this summer and this year, in fact, uh, that we all won't forget. Uh, and uh, I can't run fast enough from it. I need to join your Forrest Gump. Uh, march across the U.S. and just flee and run away, but unfortunately, you will, you will have <laughs> you will have to grow a beard down to your balls. But it takes time. <laughs> um, I I mean, it is like like for me, I'm I'm right outside of D.C. So I mean, the only thing that really directly affected me in terms of like a lot of the other stuff going on was the pandemic in Northern Virginia. We had the highest amount of cases in, in the Commonwealth, and being so close to D.C. and then Maryland. Uh, you know, it was really kind of that. And then with the riots going on, we really didn't have a lot that happened in my side of Virginia. The town next to me, Manassas, had some had some, uh, you know, just some vandalism and property damage. I, I'm not undermining it at all. But, you know, when you compare it to the videos and stuff of stores being just completely burned to the ground. I mean, I, I don't know what McDonald's did to the black community or what Wendy's did, but my God, I didn't think we'd live in an America where we're burning down everyone's favorite fast food chains. I mean, yeah. I mean, I love the McDouble as much as the next guy. And that is, that's probably ended world hunger more than any other uh, single human invention. So, uh, you know, burning down the, uh, the providers of such uh, nutritious delights is not going to solve any social ills in society. I can tell you that much. Exactly. This is why I think that McDonald's should, take over for unicef but that's neither here nor there <laughs> you, uh i mean i i followed you on twitter a lot during this whole thing especially when uh the george floyd riots started occurring and i mean the videos that you were uploading of what was going on and i mean the images you were able to find from other people that lived in your area i i began to realize that this was more about a cry for you know quote unquote systemic racism when people were throwing windows through a rolex a retailer yeah. and they were stealing all the watches and i'm like you know that's that probably has literally nothing to do with this much like when they were burning down mcdonald's but really what what's it been like can i take us from the start what where were you in march and what has life been really to this point and so folks know we're, we're doing this at the beginning of august so i i assume Every, while you know stuff is still happening, it's pretty much quieted down because everyone realized that it's hard to social distance when you're destroying everything around you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, with the Rolex stuff, they were obviously searching for bread, Remzo. So I would hope you would be a little more sympathetic to their needs. They are bread hungry, and you know, Rolex has helped deliver said bread. Uh, but as far as where I was in, where I was in March, uh, where I was in March, I was here in the city, and uh, I was still working and uh, going to the office. And you know, all of a sudden, you know, I was sort of on the train about the coronavirus early. I mean, I saw this thing coming out of China, this virus, and I was a little spooked compared to most conservatives. But uh, I was never for these massive lockdowns and all these sorts of. Uh, societal uh, ending measures and diktats by the state. Um, I did want to take it seriously. You know, I had a mask, I remember, and, you know, I didn't know how bad it would be. We obviously now know uh, that the virus is not as uh, deadly as we thought, and uh, it's pretty treatable, and there's a lot of therapeutics. So that, obviously, my view on that has changed, but I never would have thought in a million years we would have seen uh, sort of the racial riots and, uh, you know, civil unrest 
uh, in 2020 on the heels of such a great economy. I mean, this is this is worse than stuff we possibly saw in the 1960s in the U.S. Uh, and New York obviously was hit very hard by that. Uh, this you know this city was hit hard first with the the closures from the from the virus, and now from the masses of, uh, of protests and rioting and looting, uh, it's completely disrupted you know civil society. The economy is completely screeched to a halt, and the few that are remaining uh, here and trying to survive are are doing so you know. Under, under extraordinary circumstances. I mean, I, I, I can only feel for business owners. I don't know how they maintain their stores. I don't know how they can keep their storefronts open, how they could pay their rent. How can anyone pay their rent? Uh, unemployment rates scoring. I mean, the, the state is just making it impossible to do business. Um, so we're in a really bad place as a country, some places worse off than others, certainly my state, New York, but I know California uh, is up there as well as you know the usual suspects. Um, but this is this is going to have lasting impact on our society, and I don't think we fully have grasped that and, and fully see the full ramifications a few years down the line with all these trillions of dollars that are being injected artificially into the economy uh, with no you know no production behind it. I mean, this is just money being printed out of thin air. Uh, it's not it's not tied to any real value. Uh, so we're, we're we're setting ourselves up for for some real real nasty stuff down the line, much worse than what we're seeing now. And uh, it's sad because things were moving in the right direction. I would have argued, you know, back during the beginning of the year and towards the end of last year. Uh, and it's a shame that uh, things have quickly descended in, in the wrong direction. But hopefully, hopefully things can turn around uh, going into November. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it really sucks that I have to say this, but I think a lot of issues that we've encountered in terms of, you know, these societal problems, whether it be the riots, the the statue attacks, the pandemic, and that time when we all thought that Joe Exotic should be released from prison. Um, <laughs> it, it's been really an emotional roller coaster. But I think the thing that sucks more about it is the fact that it has been an election year. I was I was watching Joe Rogan the other day, and he mentioned how he has a friend who, um, I think he tested positive for coronavirus and the doctor before he went ahead and started providing him, you know, the different options of what they could do. The guy asked him, so I don't know if this is going to bug you politically, but I think hydroxychloroquine is actually something that has a lot of rep, rep to it. And I think it would help you. And the guy just looked at him. He's like, what, 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 what do you mean? My, my politics might be offended by it. And the doctor said, well, you know, a lot of people who don't like Trump have not wanted to take it. So the guy looks back at the doctor and he's like, you mean they'd rather get sick or die or just feel terrible to stick it to Trump? Uh, it, it's mass psychosis. We're dealing with one of the greatest episodes of mass psychosis. People have literally lost their minds, uh, lost any sense of uh, reality when it comes to Trump, when it comes to politics, when it comes to the world at large. Uh, and I think that's largely to blame uh, on the mass media and, and and a huge degree of brainwashing and propaganda and just utter nonsense being spread. And, and Trump was right when he came out and said that hydro hydroxychloroquine was uh, appeared to be a, uh, a good uh, medicine for as a therapeutic for this uh, disease, for this virus. And uh, there were plenty of studies that showed that. And there was a massive effort uh, by the media, by big pharma uh, to squash it uh, because obviously it's a cheap generic drug uh, that would make nobody money and would put this thing to rest much sooner. Um, and obviously, you know, it depends on how it's used and administered and at what point uh, in, in during, you know, when, when you get the virus, it's administered. I mean, that's the same for all medicines, but that doesn't mean uh, it has no uh, use in fighting the virus. That just means you need to make sure it's used properly and uh, obviously done under doctor's recommendations. No one's arguing against that. But the the, the, the censorship we have seen against this drug by uh, – 
you know, what they happened, the doctors in DC, um, that they censored the video, that they went out of their way banning anyone who dared share it. I mean, it just shows that there's a very concerted effort uh, to hurt people, to hurt the country, to keep this uh, going on for as long as possible, this social uh, unrest, this pandemic, this economic downturn, because they think if we all suffer, it will lead Biden uh, to victory. And I think that's such a sadistic way of viewing the world. It's really uh, disgusting and shameful that people are ascribing to it, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Um, but it's also pathetic for Biden that he had no chance otherwise, unless you basically had biblical plagues and and all these horrible things happen in one year. I mean, this is certainly a year for the history books. He needed all these horrible things to align for even him to be considered competitive. So you, you, you could see how big of a landslide we were looking at back in January before this all happened. Yeah, and I mean you're you're in a bit of a unique position because you stand as an as as an individual at this intersection between media and politics with all the all the stuff you do, Gavin. You've got quite a big resume, and I mean I, I say that with all Thank respect. Um, but I mean one thing that we've definitely seen is that be, because all of this is so politically motivated. What what what's funny is like I. If I want to go ahead and find 10 liberals who are attacking Trump, I can just go anywhere online and do that. What I've always found is funny is that when you have these people who are Republicans who wanted to get far in like, you know, the GOP monarchy or hierarchy, however, however you want to put it, it it's it, it's their fast track to getting on MSNBC or going Twitter viral if they go ahead and start attacking Trump or attacking Dr. Bricks or any of these other people. And unlike a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't want to go ahead and speak out against my other Republicans, though if you're never Trump, you could speak out against literally every Republican. You, you actually push back against these people. You're, you're quick to call someone a rhino and you do it with actually, you know, some some reason behind it. What, what What's that, you know, kind of been like having to have not only this this cultural schism around you, but also this intra-party stuff, which is really just trying to, to tear apart at whatever sense of commonality a lot of people have. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think our greatest enemies are from within. And I think, you know, the Republican Party, as flawed as it is, uh, I agree with Tucker that it's one of the last institutions uh, left that could co- that could combat the left if they would get their act together and, and understand what, what we're up against. But we have a lot of people uh, who are not interested in ideas. They're not interested in bettering uh, this nation or people's lives. They're only interested in their own self-aggrandizement and their own advancement and their little petty titles and within their little petty fiefdoms. Uh, in what you call the hierarchy of the party. And, uh, you know, these are people that, you know, they're fine to go after Trump because he's an establishment buster. He's someone who goes against the trends, who goes against the orthodoxy. Um, But they'll be the first to cry uh, bloody murder if you dare criticize them uh, on any of their uh, policy positions or viewpoints or statements. Uh, it's, it's total hypocrisy. Uh, but I'm of the belief that uh, I, I don't put I don't put party over everything. I'm not an apparitionic for the party. Uh, I am a conservative first and foremost. I'm, I'm someone who believes in uh, it believes in actual principles and values uh, of which is you know a love of country, love of God, love of family, uh, you know the rule of law. Uh, limited government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those values come first before, you know, whatever letter comes after your name. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people seem to have forgotten that. I don't know why you would get involved in politics uh, if you didn't care about anything. It's certainly not a, uh, a career path that certainly pays uh, dividends or uh, is an easy one. Uh, I would only do this uh, 
to advance an actual belief and 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 believe in something. So uh, there's a lot of these rhinos. There's a lot of these never Trumpers. They've they've ingratiated. They, they've always been there. They're the establishment of old. Uh, they've been on the back pedal ever since he won in 2016. But they're still out there. Uh, they're they're circling the wagon, hoping that he would lose in November, and they'll be able to re- reform the party back into their old Bushite. Uh, neocon uh, type of mentality, but we cannot let that happen. I mean, the party has drastically shifted. The Overton window has shifted, and we need to keep up with the times, and we need to understand uh, that the soul of the nation is not this country club uh, neoconservatism. It's uh, working class populism and nationalism, uh, you know, which has you know fusionism of other types of ideologies. I, I certainly come from a libertarian background like you do. That's where we first met, so I still hold many of those views, uh, and I could be big tent in a certain degree, um, but I'm certainly not aligned uh, with this sort of milk toast establishment of old uh, that's seeking to reassert itself on the political stage. That's why I recently had an article going against uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland. Uh, I've been recently attacking a lot of the YRs, uh, young Republicans and others uh, in Brooklyn who are completely, I would argue, I, I wouldn't even say that they're moderates. I would say they're complete left-wing uh, lunatics. These are people that f- support open borders, nationalized health care, uh, universal basic income, other uh, anti-police. I mean, these are basically complete leftists who are infiltrating the party. I believe, and I think there there's cells like this across the country uh, who are being funded and supported by the left wing movements and nonprofits in order to weaken our institutions, in order to weaken our infrastructure, and to make us more impotent uh, in the fight against the left. So I think we need to get real. We need to understand what we're up against and fight back uh, in the strongest possible terms. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the ideas that you're trying to defend, I mean, a lot of people that might, you know, be getting to know you for the first time here, they might think that you're talking about these large abstract things. But, you know, as someone that has followed you and, um, you know, kept up with you over the years, I mean, the stuff you're fighting over is really stuff that I consider just common sense shit, you know, support the family, support property rights. Law, yes. You know, law and order for a civil society. I never used to think that extremely basic things would be contentious. And I'm not winning any libertarian points. I mean, this, uh, you know, I've, I've moved in a very non-political direction over the past years, but in, in the past couple of years that ever since I left political consulting, but, um, you know, the, this whole year has really kind of made me reassess like what is important. And the thing is, if we don't have this strong base as a civil society, we can't talk about the more complicated issues. It's like uh, a lot of libertarians are mad because I'm voting for Trump. And it's like, you know, let, let, let's really look at this. You can talk about all your your grand abstract ideas where you live in a void and everything is utopian. And listen, I'm not a big fan of police unions. I'm, you know, very, I would consider myself very progressive when it comes to criminal justice and stuff like that. But at the same time, you're telling me that you're going to go ahead and defund the cops or completely abolish the police. Okay, what do you do? Because it's not like crime just goes away. And then what you have where you have these libertarians that are like, you're you're breaking the nap when you don't wear a mask or if you open your business, therefore it's good for the cops to come. And it's like, okay, so now you're for the cops. Yeah. It's it's at this point where it's like, you know, we're not fighting over, you know, reforming the tax code. We're not fighting. Well, I mean, in a way we are about public education. I, I like what Senator Rand Paul is doing where he's like, let's just take money out of the Department of Education and write checks right. to bear instead of printing it. It's like th- th- this is literally it. And here we are. We're going up against an old man who might have dementia who's got to take somebody. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just so bad. It's it's like I'm yeah. not saying this to be mean. I don't like Joe Biden, but I didn't really start thinking, man, is this guy like 
like, is he cognizant or not? And so all you have to do is just watch him on TV. It, it's ridiculous. So the, these things were, we're at the point where it's like, I am, you know, the, the left has just completely lost it. And by the left, I mean, I, I mean, real ideologues. I know a lot of people in like, um, you know, in, in Maryland, for example, which has traditionally been a blue state went red for Larry Hogan. Now a lot of those people who have become more conservative now really don't like Hogan. But I mean, people tell me it's like, you know, they were, they were Democrat voters since they could vote and they've looked around at what's happened and they're like, I can't vote for him. So all these yeah. people thinking that Trump is going to lose on a few of these particular situations. It's like, you got to understand there's enough people out there that have to work and pay the bills and feed their families they don't want to deal with a lot of this petty bullshit. And I mean, last month, um, oh God, it, it's all—it's only been a month, really, if you think about it. It feels like a million years um, when Democrats were just going around the country and abolish, and I mean, just completely destroying statues for the right. absolute hell of it. Um, it, it was so funny because I'm sitting on my couch. I wake up late. I've got my coffee next to me. I turn on the Fox and I see you screaming in front of the Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> statue. And I'm like, Oh God, what's, what's Gavin doing? So I turn on the volume and I mean, it, what, it wasn't like a anti black lives matter rally. It wasn't really like an anti Antifa rally. It was basically saying, listen, enough, enough is enough of this shit. If we're yeah. going after Teddy Roosevelt, then this has gone way too freaking far. Yeah, man. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, we, you know, that rally was a huge success. We got a lot of press from it. A lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, went viral, many of the videos, the speeches, et cetera. And actually, you know, could, could you, could you rewind a little bit? Can I, can I tell, tell us what happened? What led to that moment? Yeah. So, uh, there was this movement, uh, that I saw by the, uh, board of, uh, the board of the, the, uh, American museum of natural history to get rid of the Teddy Roosevelt statue, uh, in front of the museum, which, uh, is obviously there because without Teddy Roosevelt, that museum, that institution would not exist today. And uh, they were trying to get rid of it because it depicted a, a black man and a Native American man uh, standing tall uh, and proud beside him on a horse. It's an equestrian statue. He's the focus of the statue. So he's on a horse. So he's obviously going to be elevated and he's going to be the most prominent figure in this statue. Um, but they're not depicted uh, negatively. They're not depicted in a demeaning manner or subservient. They're standing tall and proud and they're, they're just, they're flanking him on either side. And it's being alongside him. Right. Yeah, they're alongside him, and they're representing, you know, the the, the continents uh, that he that he visited and frequented, uh, Africa and and North America, because he was an outdoorsman, he was he was a naturalist, etc. Um, and, and it represents his background. So there's not there was nothing there's nothing there about the statue, but this is what what the left does. They they take innocuous things that have historical meaning and historical relevance, and they seek to destroy it because this is about controlling the past in order to control the future. Uh, so they will always find anything and everything they can uh, with. Uh, a piece of art or whatever it is and, and seek to destroy it. Um, and they'll always move the goalposts and they'll never, they'll never concede and they're not there to negotiate. They're there to destroy. And, uh, the, the mob, the mob basically got this uh, museum to agree and they were planning to remove it. And, uh, when we heard about it, they were planning to do it in the middle of the night and have no, uh, outside input, even though it is publicly owned uh, statue on publicly owned ground. Uh, it should have been up to maybe a referenda at the very least, let the people decide, uh, but they tried to want, they wanted to remove it on their own. And, uh, we, we made a big stink and we got a ton of press and I think it's kind of uh, stalled them a bit. I don't know exactly where it is due to the lack of transparency, but it certainly stalled them uh, through our protest. And we had a, over 200 people show up. It was one of the first in the country to really push back against this when, when they were going after the statues and they were destroying the cities with the rioting, the looting. Uh, and it turned into a pro-police rally. But like you said, it wasn't necessarily 
anti-anything other than, you know, anti-historical destruction and anti-lawlessness. Um, we had people there from all backgrounds. We had some Democrats there because uh, he was a pretty popular uniting figure. I mean, I don't agree with a lot of things that he supported. He was, he was pretty progressive, and I'm saying that in like a negative way. Yeah, I agree. I think he was very progressive. I'm certainly not a fan of a lot of his uh, policy proposals, but I do like his I liked his populist streak. I like that he was certainly uh, an American patriot, a nationalist, and he was a sort of a folk icon in many ways. Yeah, I mean, here, here's 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 the thing. And I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's like what I'm trying to understand. Maybe it's because I'm older. But like, you know, history is complicated. Life is complicated. I could hate like 90 percent of Teddy Roosevelt's, you know, politics and still say that he was a great American. Agreed. And that's how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. Um, and that nuance is dead. That historical analysis is dead. Everything has to be black and white now. And uh, what's funny and ironic about it is that he was essentially the founder of the progressive movement, as you just mentioned. Uh, and that didn't save him. It didn't matter that he was ahead of his time in terms of race relations. It didn't matter uh, that he was uh, this, this stalwart uh, for essentially a lot of left-wing uh, ideologies. They're still coming after him. So if they could come after him, uh, they could come after anyone. And it just shows how far things have moved from just the Confederate statues. They want a wholesale revision of American history, of world history. It's part of their cultural revolution. And uh, we were happy to stand up, be the first to stand up and push back against it. Um, but you know, I, I, what you were mentioning earlier uh, was, was also interesting. I mean, don't get involved in politics if you think that this is all about utopianism and, and uh, you know, reaching an equilibrium in society. I mean, politics is about uh, victories on the margin and, and small fights and small battles and small victories and pragmatism. Um, and it moves moves society slowly in the right direction. I take uh, the view that it should be all of the above, that politics should be part of moving us in the right direction, but also education, media, the culture, etc. Um, and if you look at that holistically, politics is just one tool uh, to move our country and move our society in the right direction, but it's not the end-all be-all. And uh, you know, you, you said it right. I mean, what's, what's, what's so crazy now about the political scene is that what we would have debated maybe just a few short years ago uh, seems like... Uh, like really nothing compared to what we're debating today. I mean, today we're debating what used to be taken for granted as just consensus issues. I mean, everyone used to support law and order. Everyone used to support, uh, you know, or at least most people would support, you know, respecting uh, pro pro private property rights, not trying to erase history, uh, not trying to just destroy the fabric of society, not just trying to destroy the nuclear family. I mean, these were things uh, that for the most part, 90 plus percent of people, uh, besides a few fringe radicals, would, would essentially get on board with. But now that's become... Uh, the new political dichotomy and uh, things have moved so far uh, to the fringes um, that if we don't stand up, I mean, they are going to take control of the narrative. They are going to take control uh, of the, the political levers in society, and they're going to push through this radical agenda, which is going to hurt us all. And I, and I understand the libertarian views on some things, obviously having that background. Um, but I, I, I don't see from a pragmatic standpoint how you can have uh, how you can look at this election and think uh, that, that Trump is not um, the, the best candidate for us on the on the whole. I mean, if you think Biden uh, winning, which would imply the Senate goes with it, um, and a full Democrat control of our entire government would be good. I mean, you're out of your mind. I mean, they will set us back decades. They will push through the most regressive policy agenda you have ever seen, and they will come out. They are coming for blood. They will go after any and everyone. It doesn't matter what you call yourself, libertarian or otherwise, conservative or otherwise, anyone who stands up against their dogma, their new religion, their wokeism, 
will be subject to severe repercussions uh, professionally and even in terms of prosecution. We've seen like basically we're turning into a banana republic with some of these prosecutions. Now they're going after the NRA, what they did to Roger Stone, what they did to Flynn. I mean, that's going to happen in mass if we lose control of government. So like him or hate him, he is the last uh, you know, obstacle uh, against their Maoist Marxist takeover. And uh, if you have any respect, and if you still do appreciate you know, the, the property rights that this country was founded on and the freedoms this country was founded on and your civil rights and your, your, your right, to, be, uh, your right to, 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 to a free conscience and to your own opinions and to speak your mind freely, then you should understand that as flawed as the Republican Party has been and how weak as they've been, they are our best shot. And anything else is just basically acquiescing to, to the left steamrolling over your rights. Yeah. And I mean, it used to be, at least from my view, if you were not politically active at all, there at least used to be a barrier between a lot of the actions by the federal government or a lot of the actions you see as, as technically being like national issues. A lot of the discussions we're having, there used to be a separation. As soon as you turned off the TV, you could go to the store, you can go talk to your neighbors. And it's this sense of, okay, well, yeah, obviously something important is happening, but at least it's not directly affecting my community. Now, because no one can really go to work now, because everyone has just been completely badgered by 24 seven media, it's almost like that, that sense of safety, that sense of calm, that, that sense of normalcy, that's what's been removed. And I mean, I'm seeing it in, in my area and I live in a very well-to-do area of Northern Virginia. I can't imagine what's been like for areas like New York, for example, where it's like all the national issues were essentially local issues. And now whatever sense of calm there was before this has just been completely obliterated. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the normalcy in our lives and, you know, what the world used to be like, you know, 2019 and before is completely over. Uh, I think, you know, we're, we've reached an inflection point in our society and our history that uh, everything after the beginning of this virus essentially is just new territory, new ground and a new era. Uh, and it's not a good era. It's not something that uh, is a happy place. I think we're seeing uh, really a complete revision of how society will operate and function. I think we're going to live in a less free society. I think we're going to, uh, you know, have a lot more uh, divisions, a lot more animosity towards one another. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of economic destitution. I think our rights are going to be trampled with all these different mandates to fight uh, this this China virus, which is really, you know, nothing in my mind now after seeing the data come in is really not uh, a cause to, to destroy our whole uh our whole country over, but, um, you know, people want to return to normal. And honestly, if there was a campaign that, uh, a politician ran on that said, we are going to open the economy. We are going to get back to normal. Uh, we are obviously going to take precautions on certain things, but we're not rewriting our entire society to fight a virus with a 99% survival rate. And we're no, no longer going to tolerate, uh, you know, abuse of, uh, uh, this onslaught of criminality in our society. Uh, if you ran on that platform, you would win hands down. I, I think the silent majority is still real. I think most people want that. Um, it, they're just looking for leaders that have the, the backbone and the fortitude to say it. Uh, Trump has been. I wish he came out stronger for it in some regards. Um, you know, he, he has, I think, some bad advisors around him who have been misguiding him um, because a lot of these issues that have popped up in this year really play to his base, really play to his core uh, platform, policy platform that he's always stood for. Uh, so it should have been something that he could have seized the moment on. Instead, um, we've let the left take the narrative away. We've let fear mongering rule, rule the day. 
And, uh, and as a consequence, you know, we're, we're in a really bad place as a country, something we haven't seen before. Uh, it really feels like a time of, like, on, on the precipice of a civil war or, or something worse. Um, just completely. Really? Okay, I, I agree with everything you say except that last part. We're dealing with a country that had a toilet paper freak out, and we weren't even running out of toilet paper. You think that we're going to start fighting each other? I don't know. I think uh, I saw those stories that said they were planning for a Trump win with uh, possibly some states seceding. I mean, they were talking about, you know, not, not, true. Con- not conceding the election. I mean, I don't want this to happen. I don't. <laughs> I, I would love this just to return to normal so I could go eat a burger inside a restaurant. But, um, you know, the left, they they seem like they will lose their everlasting minds if this guy wins again and if it's winning by you know a decent margin that they can't dispute uh so i think you know that they're going to do everything they can i think they're going to manipulate polls they're going to continue to push their narratives in the media and uh they're going to wage total war and uh, if it backfires on them then you know god help us all because we saw what happened last time uh when they lost and they they entered into this bout of psychosis that really began our discussion um i think it's only going to get worse i mean i I don't know what they're capable of and and you look at some cities across this country you look at portland uh you looked at uh you know scenes in 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 dc and seattle wherever i mean this this doesn't look like the united states this looks like some post-apocalyptic america with these 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 roving gangs of antifa uh setting up communes taking over streets uh beating up anyone who disagrees with them and just setting a, and becoming a law unto themselves i mean this is not something i thought i would have seen in my lifetime uh so we have become like acclimated uh to these radical uh changes in our society that w- we would never have tolerated or even uh contemplated a few years ago i mean no one in the right mind would have thought that a major american city uh would have been uh had a, a huge part of its downtown uh been dominated by a domestic terror organization and and the local state and federal authorities were were completely powerless to fight it off i mean so for me to say you know what i said before that we could be approaching some kind of you know internal strife i mean it's possible it doesn't happen but i think the way everything has been heading um, you know, if, if a few things go the wrong way, I mean, we could be looking at a really rough, uh, rough year. And I think it's only going to get worse till November. And I think win or lose, it's not going to be pretty after November. Yeah. I mean, th- this is, this is such a strange time to be alive because I, I don't, I don't buy that this is the election to end all elections only because they always say that, but this is really, really an election where it's like, if you want to go back to work, you know who you have to vote for. If you want to keep your police, good or bad, to at least understand that that's what you need for a civil society to function, then you know who to vote for. If you want to make sure that your neighbors aren't going to snitch on you for you know being too close to another person or whether or not your child violated a truancy law because they're five minutes late to, late to a Skype classroom session, like you know who to vote for. It, it's, it's come to the point where just very, very basic things now have become such contentious things. And, you know, I, I blame, I blame a lot of things and everyone likes to blame the media and stuff like that. But I mean, the truth is we're ultimately, we, we are ultimately responsible for the environment we've made. We've allowed ourselves to become this way. And that's the worst part about it. We all want to blame somebody else. We rarely want to actually take some blame for ourselves in this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I suppose, and, um, you know, it, it is very strange times we're living in. It's a little surreal. I think, you know, we talked about it earlier when you said, you know, you can't believe it was just a month ago. I mean, time has literally slowed. Uh, things feel like uh, 
it just just everything the aura of uh, of just day to day life has changed. I mean, that probably has to do with you know you know we're all working from home, we're all inside more often. Um, you know, we're, we're we're when we're outside, it's all the social distancing. I mean, there's a lot of psychological. Uh, components to this that I don't think are really being looked at fully. I think it's really changing how people like look at the world, how they feel about each other, how they think about themselves, because, you know, we're really in uncharted territory here uh, in terms of all these, these drastic changes in such a short period of time. Um, and I think, you know, this is going to have repercussions down the line, uh, not just economically, not just for the normal things that we can, you know, quantify, but just, you know, for just our society in general and just how people, uh, you know, interact and how people act. And I think, I think this, I think we already had the psychosis of, of the left before this, uh, lockdowns. I think it's only, uh, exacerbated that problem with a lot of these people now, like not having jobs and being at home and getting paid to do nothing. Uh, cause we have this big government nanny state essentially paying everyone just to stay home and indoors, uh, rather than encourage them to go out and work or, or, or keep their businesses open. So, um, we're creating, uh, we're basically fueling, uh, all these problems ourselves through these horrible policies. And if we would just return to normal, which would just take, uh, you know, a few tough decisions, like just biting the bullet, taking the rough, taking the bad medicine, that's going to make you feel bad at first, but it's going to be good in the long term. If we would be willing to make those uh, tough decisions as a, as a, as a country, we would be better off, you know, maybe not in the short term, but certainly in the long term uh, for our posterity. And we need to look, you know, beyond just election cycles. We need to look just beyond the next month or two of the of the news of the news cycle and say, listen, uh, what what we're doing right now, we're we're setting ourselves up for for a real bad place. And you're, you're, these trillion dollar bailouts and all this other stuff is going to set us up uh, for for catastrophe. Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree with you on that one. And you know, the the one thing I kind of want to do caveat this 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 new show that I've been doing since uh you know I think it's pre plague. I don't know if we're gonna call it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it BP before the plague. I like it. BP. <laughs> yeah, BP sponsored and- by BP. um you know it's really about understanding how we place ourselves in a situation where we're independent and by independent i don't mean fully being an autonomous person it's hard to do that in this world but being independent in the way that you can move when you need to move that you have the resources and the money so that way you're not affixed to a certain location and then also being well within your own life your finances your health so you have the ability to make those choices so so i am curious during all of this have you considered leaving New York? Um, I mean, it's come up more than I would have liked. I mean, had you asked me a few months ago, BP time, I would have said never. But uh, really, the city has changed, and uh, it's not the same place it was a few months ago. I mean, there are a few neighborhoods like mine in the Upper East that's uh, doing relatively okay. I mean, there's a semblance of normalcy. You know, there's there's stores open outdoors and things like that, um, and there's still a decent amount of foot traffic. But you know, every other storefront is still closed. Uh, even the places that are open, they're you know at minimal capacity, and they're definitely not going to make it through the winter. Um, so we're kind of in this weird time right now where things are lingering. But if there is another lockdown, if there is a surge or whatever they're going to call it with the virus. Um, whatever last vestiges of normalcy left in the city are going to be gone. And I don't think people realize that. Um, in the city, yeah, I mean, the, the, a place like New York, you put up with it. You put up with a lot of the BS. You put up with these ridiculous, uh, uh, you know, Democrat-run cities because uh, at the end of the day, they are cultural hubs. They are uh, economic hubs. You have to be here to work. You have to be here to make good money. You have to be here to advance your career. And you get the perks of, you know, all the culture that comes with it, the restaurants, the the, the, the theater, the music scene, whatever it is, the bars, the restaurants, et cetera, you know, but when that's gone, then it's a horrible trade-off. Then you're basically just paying a lot of money uh, for, for a little bit of square footage. 
uh, and you don't have to work there. You know, you could work literally anywhere now remotely, which I think is a good thing. I think um, basically what kept a lot of these cities alive, these Democrat-run cities alive, beyond just their name brand, like the name brand New York, uh, what kept them alive is just the concentration of capital and the concentration of uh, economic activity. But now uh, that that old, you know, nine to five, which I thought was just outdated anyway, but that nine to five working from an office thing is, is starting to die out. Uh, and you could essentially do the same thing, working remotely, working for uh, shorter hours, uh, the cities are going to lose their grip on that uh, that economic capital, and it's going to disperse across the entire country. You're going to see a resurgence in the suburbs. You're going to re- see a resurgence in rural areas because people now uh, could uh, be more flexible with where they live, and many of them probably would not have chose to live in the city, but it may have been the only place that they could work. Um, so that's going to have huge ramifications uh, for these these Democrat-run cities, and they're going to have to really uh, reform, change their tune, change their policies if they're going to want to attract people, attract human capital, attract businesses. Otherwise, uh, they don't have a leg up anymore, and that that's they're going to go the way of a lot of the uh, former industrial cities went uh, in the Midwest. They're going to really just kind of cripple and die, um, and I think we're going to see a, a massive change demographically uh, from the cities uh, into these uh, periphery areas uh, where people can get lower-cost housing and they can still get all the amenities that were available to them in the cities, but now they could work from wherever. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that may be a good thing. I mean, I think that'll break the stranglehold. I would, I would just hope that the people fleeing the cities don't vote for the same policies that destroyed the cities. And I would hope the people who remain in the cities would be wise enough uh, to vote for new government and new policies to uh, keep them competitive. For a place like New York, though, back to your original question, to be specific, I think New York is a unique case just due to its size and its stature and its significance. Um, so I think they'll, it'll still retain you know, a, a core of a business and, uh, and uh, culture, uh, but it's never going to be the same. It's a shadow of its former self and it's going to go through a slump and it's a very cyclical city in general. It's a cyclical uh, place that, you know, they go through these ups and downs where it gets really, has to get really, really bad before it gets better again. Uh, like we saw with Giuliani, et cetera. And it's a shame it has to be like that, but that's kind of because of the transient mindset of the city where people come here from wherever and they leave after a few years and they're not building roots, they're not building communities, they're not building families. And that's what you could basically say about a lot of, uh, I'm drifting off here, but you could say that about, you know, mass migration in general, when you have, uh, when you have this mass migration, it's like, you know, a lot of transients who have no roots, who have no uh, connection to these different communities, to these nations, uh, you get that sort of cyclical nature, because if you don't have the institutional knowledge of what uh, destroyed these places or what made those places great, um, you're not going to be able to vote uh, properly, and you're not going to have government that reflects uh, people that have that institutional knowledge. I'm getting really theoretical here, but yeah, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I totally, I totally see where you're going with it. I mean, you were talking of things in like a large scale. I mean, the the biggest thing that I've learned through this whole situation is really think locally. And uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a native Virginian, but I've been living in Virginia since 2007, 2008. So this is really the only stable place I knew because I, I was an army brat. It's just part of the life. And it, it is really funny because when I lived, when I moved here to Fairfax County, it was really a very deep red place, very moderate Republican, but deep red compared to, you know, a, a lot of our neighbors um, and, and then over time, you had a lot of people coming from, down from up north. And you had a lot of people from California coming. You had a lot of people from the major cities coming. So Northern Virginia has really become this transitory place. And then, you know, we, of course, we have a lot of people coming from overseas. So, of course, I mean, the, Virginia went from being a reliably red state to a blue state, despite the fact that almost 
mo- most of the Commonwealth, when you look at a map, is is conservative. And, um, you know, this is my adopted home. So I, I understand it a bit more. And I've always I've, I've always lived in the South primarily. So it always bothered me when it's like you, you've got people who don't live here. You have people that have nothing to do with people who actually live and work and die in Virginia, telling Virginia how to go ahead and go about our days. And I mean, I, the best thing I did was I, in the middle of the pandemic, I went on a road trip. I did a full podcast about it. I did a whole road trip around Virginia, checking out all the cities I've never been to. And I mean, in, in the midst of all this, of course, what am I going to run into? I'm going to run into Confederate monuments. And uh, I'm, I'm not stupid. I know that there are lost cause monuments that were put up to go ahead and basically pervade, I mean, continue to spread this idea of white supremacy in the South. There's a difference between those monuments, which you could usually tell if you did a little bit of homework, and monuments like a majority of the ones I saw in the in the South of the Commonwealth, where you just see hundreds and hundreds of names. And you see these names and you read the plaques and what are they? They're hundreds of names of a full generation, or in some cases, in, in one of the towns I went to, two generations of men fathers and sons, cousins and uncles who went to go fight in a war and they never came back. And, you know, um, with with the current narrative we're seeing right now with the African-American community, I agree with them. We're not that far removed from, from Jim Crow. We're not that far removed from slavery when you really look at things flat. But at the same time, the same could be said for a lot of these communities where what happens when you take all the men out and they all die in war and then the communities are burnt down because of Sherman's march to the sheets, march, march to the sea. You're going to have the situation where, yeah, it's going to take a while for these people to recover. So think about it from their point of view. They're poor. Their their parents were poor. Their great-grandparents were poor. They never left. They stayed at home. The jobs went away. The drug use went up. And now what you're trying to do is pick apart part of their communal identity that they have left. And then people get mad when they say, stop, leave us alone. It's, it's completely yeah. like this backhanded elitist mindset that we're seeing from people who otherwise – should should just leave others alone. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff there. What you just said, I'll start with like, you know, how you have states like Virginia and actually like New York that are large swaths of it are actually Republican and they're, they're skewed. I think in the case of Virginia with, with Nova, with Northern Virginia, and in the case of New York, uh, the five boroughs. Um, and what, what you used to have uh, before some Supreme court rulings is that uh, a lot of states had their own internal electoral college, uh, that they had a sort of a quasi federal system at the state level where you had uh, the counties. Um, you know, have equal representation and say their upper house in the Senate. And those kind of mechanisms, which are drawn from the Constitution, uh, allowed sort of uh, this this uh, geographic disbursement of political power. So it wouldn't be concentrated in just the cities. And uh, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, unconstitutional with their one man, one court ruling, all that nonsense. Um, in a lot of states that previously had um, these sort of a, that sort of system uh, had to replace them, and that actually helped the Democrats, obviously, because they have their concentration of power in the major urban areas, in the major population areas, and then they could outvote uh, the huge swaths of the rest of the state, which if you look at a map by county, which you could do for a place like Virginia and New York, you'll see sea of red, and then you'll see just pockets of blue, and those pockets are what outvote the rest. Um, so something, a simple change like that could really help a lot of these cities, uh, even states, but also cities. Funny enough, New York, New York City used to have that. They used to have a bicameral uh, city council with a board of aldermen and a, and a, and a um, I believe it was called the, uh, I forgot the name of it, the, the, uh, the, the, the board of revision. 
And it basically said that each borough had an equal representation. So a very Republican borough uh, like Staten Island had an equal representation with the other four boroughs. And that actually helped balance power and helped make sure that interests of one borough wasn't overwhelmed by the interests of the larger boroughs. So simple things like that have been, you know, trampled on. Uh, but to get to your uh, broader point about, you know, the Confederacy, the Civil War, the South, I mean, nuance is dead. I mean, the left has killed nuance. Uh, they've killed, as we mentioned earlier, any sort of like real historical analysis. And look, obviously at the time, uh, you know, slavery was was reprehensible. I'm glad the Union won. I'm glad uh, slavery was put to a bloody end. But um, you have to also remember that there was nuances to this, some nuances that people don't like to talk about, how slavery was legal in the North throughout the entire duration of the war of uh, West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, Kentucky, all Union states, including also the capital of the country, Washington, D.C., all had slavery. Um, and then even when the Emancipation Proclamation was declared, it wasn't even universal. It was only for a select few states. Um, so you have to remember that uh, looking back on it in such black and white terms is 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 kind of you know not accurate. It's not what you should be doing. You should be looking at it with a with a bit of nuance. You should also recognize that most of the people that fought for the South were basically poor back farm country you know bumpkins who didn't own slaves who didn't own plantations. And those are the people you're talking about. You know the generations of people that died in a very bloody conflict. Um, and, you know, they were fighting more for what they felt was their state's rights and what they felt was for uh, their own, you know, pride in, in their southern heritage, et cetera, because many of them had no economic interest. If anything, oh, well, they- I mean, what, what's really funny now is like with the roaming bands of federal agents who are just like grabbing people in black bags and driving off of them. I'm not laughing because I think it's OK. I'm laughing because I think it's kind of funny. I don't, <laughs> I don't, OK, I, I have my own objections to it, but it is kind of funny where you have these liberal cities saying, oh, we don't want uh, federal agents or federal, uh, you know, anyone from the federal government here. It's like, well, that, that's really funny how you have these cities and these states that are trying to repel what they consider right. federal intrusion. I mean, it's it's really funny. I think that's the beautiful thing about America that we ignore. Now, my my, my myself, my family, I come from a very multiracial, multiethnic family. And when you look at my mother's side, who has been in the United States on her father's side, going back to the 1600s, they were French Huguenots. Um, huh. You know, we have we have someone who was actually from New York. It was a Brownell, we think. Uh, that's my that's you know that that was my mom's side of the family. He was one of the first officers to lead the first racially integrated unit in the Union. Oh wow, interesting. So you know, here we have this part of my family, which is part of really the tapestry of of America. Yet at uh-huh. the same time, here we are generations later, and I, I come from the sentimentality of, you know, someone who's lived and grown up in Southern culture, and I'm able to look at the Civil War from both ways and understand that, you know, the, the thing that was really lost was a shared sense of common humanity. And that, that's, that's what, what a lot of people are missing. I mean, they're not they're, – they, at the end of the Civil War, there was – you know, they tried to come together. Some of those statues were built – uh, you know, they were built for a purpose. They were built to sort of unite the country um, and to bring everyone back under the fold. I mean, you could argue about it, obviously, in the past, looking back. But uh, this was a part of our history. We should learn from our history. 
And uh, if you start to judge these pre-modern people by post-modern standards of morality, you have to erase all of history because, okay, yes, the Confederates, okay, but where do you end it? I mean, because the founders also had slaves and, you know, all the great Greek and Roman uh, thinkers that we base much of Western civilization on uh, own slaves. There were slaves in biblical, uh, you know, biblical times, you know, with, 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 with the kingdoms of Israel going all the way up to the time of Jesus. I mean, so, you know, humanity is about progression and it's about, you know, the redefining of moralities to, you know, meet with the times. I don't think it's been static. I mean, I argue it's objective, sure. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to look at pre-modern people and then hold them to standards of, of post-modern individuals. I mean, the world's a cruel place. I think people have uh, have adapted and have better themselves as a society. We've had enlightenments. We've had dark ages. There's been ups and downs. Um, but, you know, with, with the statue stuff, it really, if you take it to its logical conclusion, we have to erase all of history. And I don't necessarily think every statue is commemorating someone. Um, it could be viewed in different ways. It could be viewed as simply just remembering the past and remembering uh, what these people did, uh, good and bad. Uh, and that's the thing we have to remember. It's not this this black and white. It's not so cut and dry. Pe- there were people that fought for the Confederacy that were good guys. There were people that fought for the Union that were bad guys. Uh, there were people that you know were good and bad. Um, and you know they used to teach history like that. Now it's all you know it's all like something out of a Hollywood movie. It's so childish and immature. And you obviously have that perspective. I think there are other people who uh, could have a similar perspective, maybe coming from a mid-Atlantic state where they could see the South and the North. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, that, that these discussions can't be had. And if I said even, you know, a tenth, 10% of what I said today anywhere else, they would just immediately be like, oh, he's a racist, whatever, whatever. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm just here to talk about, you know, history in a, in a sane, rational way. And they all want to just, you know, paint it as cut and dry to push their own political narrative, which, as you pointed out, is ironic because a lot of the narratives they're pushing in the modern day uh, would have been applicable uh, to what the Confederates wanted. Now they're all of a sudden, you know, they're pushing back against uh, federal enforcement of laws. They're pushing for secession. Uh, they're pushing for, you know, nullification of, uh, of immigration laws, nullification of a lot of different uh, federal uh, federal legislation or federal decrees from the Trump administration. All of, all of, all of those things are things that the Democrats and the uh, in, in the South uh, during the Confederacy would have supported. So uh, it, it's just ironic that, um, you know, they're the first, they, they don't even see that, that hypocrisy in, in their current uh, political, uh, political aspirations. Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't believe that history repeats itself, but it sure as hell rhymes. <laughs> I look, I, I think it definitely does. I mean, I, I, I am of a full belief that, you know, we're, we have a short history. Uh, we, so we have a short memory as humans. We tend to forget our past. Uh, and that's why we're doomed to repeat it because we don't learn from our past. That's why history is so important. I mean, there's always like the little anecdotes, like don't invade Russia in the wintertime. <laughs> uh, you know, there's also just more macro level stuff. Like there's definitely more macro level stuff. I mean, people have always made analogies to ancient Rome. People have made analogies uh, now to the French Revolution, et cetera. Obviously, it's never going to be uh, an exact correlation and, and, and just a perfect match. But, you know, if you look at these historical periods of time, let's just take, for example, the French Revolution, and you had... Uh, what started out as legitimate grievances and then it was taken over by a very radical left-wing faction and they ended up being far worse oppressors uh, than the the kings that they replaced. And you see the same thing in, say, a place like Cuba, where, you know, the original uh, revolution against Batista was a corrupt kind of mafia-run dictatorship, okay, but what replaced it ended up being much worse. And, you know, you could you could see these sort of patterns throughout history. Again, they're not exactly perfect, but if you learn from them, you could make better decisions in the future. Um, and I think conservatives in general and people on the right and even libertarians tend to have a better sense of that than the left, uh, who seem to have a very short memory, and it's very utopian, uh, and it's very not 
not based on on reality. It's not based on the human condition. It's not based on how people actually operate in society. It's based off of uh, failed economic treaties and, uh, you know, just really trying to change uh, the world to fit an image that's just not natural and just not uh, organic. Um, and that's why their their types of rule and their types of uh, government always end up being the most cruel and tyrannical because they're forcing something that just wouldn't come about naturally, that wouldn't come about organically, that's just not really widely supported because they want to just completely, utterly change society. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. They want to do that and it's becoming, uh, they're becoming a louder and louder minority. Uh, they're growing in numbers, but you could you see how they could just de- de- debil- completely destabilize and uh, debilitate the entire nation by just having a few small cells uh, of very radical fanatics in the ma- in the major media markets, in the major cities. We saw it with James O'Keefe's Project Veritas. They pointed this out. It's like you don't need a really big groundswell of support. You just need a few thousand crazy, crazy bastards in these major cities for people to be like, holy crap, they're everywhere. Holy crap, they must be really popular. And it's like, no, that's just a, that's just like a marketing gimmick. They're trying to give you the illusion uh, that these radical left-wing views have the popular support that they really don't. Um, I'm rambling, but yes. That oh, was, no, uh, I mean, I, you, you just reminded me. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get it. I mean, you just remind me of the story. When I was working at FreedomWorks, one thing I liked to do during my lunch break is I would walk over to Capitol Hill. Uh, there was always a rally or something going on. I didn't really care what the rally was about most of the time. I just want to go actually just see see what was going on. It's part of the joy of being in D.C. You, you get to see people do that stuff. And I'll never forget, there was this pro-life rally. Um, Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, Rand Paul were there. Uh, Matt Walsh was there. And and across the street, you had people from Emily's List and Planned Parenthood show up for a, quote, counter rally. But what ended up happening was they, they showed up in a bus. Everyone got out. Um, a couple people with cameras stood in front of them. They all crowded together very tightly. Then they did a chant and they waved their signs. And as soon as the guy with the camera put his camera down, they just sta- they just went over to the bus. And I thought, well, that's really weird. That's that's kind of a pathetic rally. But I end up watching our local Fox affiliate when I get home. And you would have thought that like thousands of people showed up and it was for hours long and that the whole narrative wasn't painted by the actual truth behind the context of the event. But it was all from the people who were spoken with. And it was everyone who showed up on behalf of Emily's List and Planned Parenthood. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I know they've done that. Uh, with the, they'll they'll downplay the pro-life uh, rallies and marches, and then they'll they'll basically get a certain frame and a certain camera angle to make it seem like the counter uh, pro-choice marches are equal in size. When you know that's just never the case. And sure, there are definitely big and mass uh, left-wing uh, gatherings as well. I mean, I, I think those crowd size things are are usually kind of irrelevant. I think there's uh, a lot of people that could feel very strongly and just never show up in general. Uh, I don't think yeah. it necessarily reflects on a movement's popularity and that goes for both left-wing and right-wing movements. Um, but the, the it, it's, it's for sure. I mean, there's massive media manipulation um, and it's all very subtle and it, it, it's done to make people, I mean, people generally want to conform. And I feel like a lot of people uh, tend not to want to go against the grain, you know, like I'm talking about, you know, the average Joe, uh, Joe and Jane, I think, you know, so if you give the impression uh, that a certain viewpoint, a certain ideology, a certain set of beliefs has a lot more support than it really does, you're going to gain a lot of supporters. And I think that's what happened with BLM. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they obviously conflate, they're very good with semantics. I mean, just like the word liberal in and of itself used to basically mean libertarian or classical liberal. Now it means something completely different. They do these semantic games with things like progressive. You know, obviously we all want to progress. We all want to move forward in a, in a good trajectory. 
Um, so they, they like to market their things uh, like Black Lives Matter. I mean, so, the, so you can't argue against that because, of course, you believe Black Lives Matter. Um, who would deny that? But they obviously capitalize them. They make it a movement now and they put a certain, a certain creed. They attach a creed to it. And now if you argue against that really regressive and, and Marxist creed, you apparently don't think Black Lives Matter because they were very smart and coy uh, to make the name of their movement uh, the same as their slogan or the phrase that, that came up came about organically. Um, and that's what they do. And it's all these little games. It's all these things. And that's how it, they're able to manipulate uh, public opinion and public opinion polls. And that's why you saw uh, a surge for the BLM movement originally. And then the polls started to decline over time as, uh, as a lot of this stuff became more common knowledge. And thank God for the internet. Thank God for uh, alternative sources of media and information, things like this podcast, uh, where people can get uh, information from a whole variety of different sources. And that marketplace of ideas, that free form of exchange uh, can break down their uh, narratives, can break down uh, these uh, subversions that they're creating uh, to manipulate people's feelings about certain things. And that's why we see a big push by the left, by the big tech uh, monopolies, and I'm sure we may disagree on this, but there's a real big push from them to censor certain viewpoints, to come down hard on certain viewpoints, and uh, will, will they'll have certain protect, will they'll, they'll have defenders who claim property rights protections, even though they are the beneficiaries of many government privileges, um, and they're doing it under those aus- the auspices of those privileges to suppress certain voices, to suppress certain viewpoints, um, and that's doing a big disservice uh, to the country in general because if you can't get these opposing views out. Uh, you're, you're really setting yourself up for one party rule, one party state. And that's, so that, that's the path really towards tyranny, the road to serfdom, so to speak. Yeah. And I mean, in, in terms of that, I mean, since you bring it up, my, my biggest thing has always been, I don't care what you believe or what you do, as long as we're all equal under the law. And exactly. it's like, if I go and I run someone over with my car and it's on camera and I say, well, I don't recognize the person as being a person or any other type of bullshit like that. Like I still go to jail. When it comes to these, you know, when, when it comes to like Facebook and Twitter, um, if they want to be a publisher, I mean, if they want to go ahead and censor people and go ahead and do all that stuff, my thing is, let them do it. As, but they can't have the same protections like an right. actual social media platform should be. If they want to be a publisher, if they want to actually start interjecting more of their ideology and their actions into the space they've created, then that's the bed they've made. They have to sleep in it. And they should yeah. be able, I mean, it's like I uh, when, when I explain it to people, it's like if some if if somebody tweets out, you know, Trump is an alien and he eats children and stuff. You could, I mean, he could technically sue the person who's saying that. But right. now if Facebook is going to go ahead and say what is right and what is wrong and they allow certain things like that to stay up, then not only does Trump have the right to sue the person that said that, he also has the right to sue Facebook and Twitter. Why? Because that's the environment they've made. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree with you. Equality under the law, and it's kind of ridiculous that a lot of people who claim to be pro-market and free market are doing these uh, mental gymnastics and pushing out these legalistic arguments uh, to defend the current uh, Section 230 uh, provisions, which have set up a completely unequal protections. Uh, they basically are uh, given protections against any sort of liability that a traditional non-internet, non-digital uh, company uh, would not have um, just because they happen to be online. But it, it's ridiculous. If I had a, uh, a newspaper 
and I published certain things, I could be held liable for what I published, what I editorialized. But you have these online companies who are digital and they don't print them and they're not traditional media. Uh, and for that simple reason that they could do, they could publish things, they could editorialize, uh, they can manipulate um, and engage in things that would be akin to a publisher, and they don't have the same liabilities. And it's just simply not an equal playing field. And uh, they want to be able, I mean, and then the whole law is written in a way that is, one, it's antiquated, and two, it just doesn't understand the realities. If you want to be a platform, fine. Uh, to be a platform and to not be held liable for whatever's published on your platform. You cannot editorialize that content. You cannot manipulate that content. You cannot censor that content within a certain framework. Obviously, if someone's calling for death threats or something like that, you can make provisions. Oh yeah. Well, once you like break the law, you're of not course. just obligated to do it. You legally have to do that. Have to do it. Yeah. And then, you know, yeah. fraud, et cetera. I mean, there obviously there's already existing statute and law that would cover a lot of this. I mean, it could be reiterated. Sure. Um, but basically, if you want to be a platform, you don't want to be held liable for the views of your users on said platform. You cannot engage uh, in this mass type of politicized uh, editor, ed, you know, uh, editorialization and censorship, et cetera. Um, and if you can't do that, that's fine. You could still operate as you want. You're just going to be a publisher and you're probably going to have to pay more in legal fees and it's going to come at a cost. And it, it, that, that's what it should be. I mean, that, that is about as free market as it gets. We have courts of law. We have, uh, you know, we have laws on the books and we have litigation for a reason and, uh, you're not going to get government protections and government, uh, you know, privileges to shield you from said, uh, liability and litigation unless, you know, you're, you're adhering to the letter of the law and they're not adhering to the letter of the law. They're clearly abusing it. Uh, and it's a badly written law. It should be revised and Twitter could do whatever they want to do. And if they want to continue to operate as they're operating, that's fine. No one's saying they can't, but they should be liable to actions. If you want to delete someone's account, um, you know, that they may have put a ton of money into that they may have built up over years and uh, that they may have, you know, published certain views on, um, then you should be liable. If, and then at the same time, if someone publishes something else on your platform that calls for the destruction of a country or is calling against, you know, uh, to, to kill people, then you should, or, or, or spreading defamation and slander, or whatever, that you may be held liable because you're giving them a platform. Uh, so it's either you, you allow free speech or you don't. It's one or the other. Um, I think it's a pretty simple standard. I think it, it meets the, the premise that you, that you argued for equality under the law. So there's no reason uh, that people should be arguing against this. It's it's pretty straightforward to me. The only reason they're doing it is because I think there's a lot of nonprofits and a lot of these supposedly free market think tanks that are technically on the dole of big tech. And they're coming up with means to argue essentially for government privileges under the auspices of private property rights. When it's not that, this is not about private property. Twitter could do whatever the hell they want to do. Facebook could do whatever the hell they want to do. But in doing so, they should be liable for their actions. It's simple as that. Yeah, I mean, it's why I have nothing to do with the student organization, which I, I once loved and still have a soft spot for Students for Liberty. I was a campus coordinator. I did all the stuff. I have very fond memories. I'm glad I did it. But I, I, don't, I don't really support them anymore, really have anything to do with them. Because when you look at who supports like LibertyCon, for example, who are, two, who are two of the biggest donors, Google and Facebook. And you're telling yep. me that that doesn't have a sway? Of course it has a sway, because you don't want to have to piss off the people that are, that are giving you money. Yep. Yeah. It's true. And then that, and we saw, I mean, a lot of these uh, even conservative think tanks like Heritage, they were on Google's dole. 
um, and they were obviously going to, you know, carry water for them. And it's it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, a lot of these companies they benefit from government protections, government subsidies. Uh, they operate as a monopoly. It's not an equal playing field um, at all. I mean, if people want to argue that that a lot of these industries are in a free market, they're not. Um, they're they're hardly at equilibrium, and uh, they're hardly operating under you know ideal conditions of a free market. So. If you understand economic theory, you know these. When you start to get the government involved, you're bound to create monopolies. I still hold that view, you know, from my days as a libertarian. Um, but they're gonna they're gonna pretend that's not the case, and they're gonna pretend that these companies haven't amassed so much power and haven't taken advantage uh, of certain legal provisions and certain government privileges, which is just a c- complete joke. It's ridiculous to assume that. I just wish that they were as. Uh, I mean, you know, there's so many other industries that are completely overregulated. I mean, I know someone brought up something about the auto industry. Like if I wanted to go start building cars out of my garage and selling them, I couldn't do that. Uh, so where's the libertarian or free market think tank defending, uh, you know, independent automakers? They're hardly there because there's no there's no giant donor pool for it. But they'll gladly go to bat for big tech under the auspices of, oh, we're this, we're this righteous free market organization. But it's like you hardly apply those principles uh, broadly and equally to all these different industries. You hardly talk about other industries that have a whole slew of things preventing real free market and, and real um, you know, small businesses from rising and, and allowing competition uh, within, within these industries. Uh, but you'll gladly go to bat for uh, very clearly corporatist monopolies that benefit from government privileges because of your warped view of property rights and, uh, and giving them their own freedoms when it's clearly they're abusing, uh, abusing all of that. Yeah. Strange times, man. Strange times. This is going to be such a great movie when, when somebody actually does get a 2020 movie. Right. But Hey, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your time. We've covered a lot of stuff and I hope yes. people definitely learn. Uh, you're a man in motion and I love being able to sit back and be along for the ride and see you go into action, Gavin. I really do. If people want to go ahead and keep up with you and everything else that you're doing, how could they do so? Absolutely. Uh, you can follow me on all my social media platforms at Gavin Wax, G-A-V-I-N-W-A-X. That's Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and of course, The Great Parlor, um, which I have uh, recently joined. And uh, you can check me out there on my website, GavinWax.com. You can check out uh, my club, the New York King Republican Club, www.nyyrc.com. I have columns in Town Hall, Newsmax, and a few other sites. Uh, you can check them out there. And uh, thanks again for having me on, Rems. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Folks, you heard the man. Everything will go ahead and be in the show notes today. Listen, whether you like me or hate me, whether you agree with everything my guests say or not, what's better is that we're having these conversations and they're more than the sound bites. And at least for a little bit, at least for a small chunk of your day, we can pretend that things are at least slightly more comedic, slightly more normal than they really are. As always, I'm Rupso W. Martinez. You're listening to On the Run. Have a great night, America. Good night. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians network at wearelibertarians.com.